Chapter 8 of Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A. Janelle Risa. Noah and Moses. Part 1. The next day, Moore had risen before the sun and had taken a ride to Winbury and back ere his sister made the cafe au lait or cut the tartines for his breakfast. What business he transacted there he kept to himself. Hortense asked no questions. It was not her wont to comment on his movements, nor his to render an account of them. The secrets of business, complicated and often dismal mysteries, were buried in his breast and never came out of their sepulchre, save now and then to scare Joe Scott, or give a start to some foreign correspondent. Indeed, a general habit of reserve on whatever was important seemed bred in his mercantile blood. Breakfast over, he went to his counting-house. Henry, Joe Scott's boy, brought in the letters and the daily papers. Moore seated himself at his desk, broke the seals of the documents, and glanced them over. They were all short, but not, it seemed sweet, probably rather sour, on the contrary. For as Moore laid down the last, his nostrils emitted a derisive and defiant snuff, and though he burst into no soliloquy, there was a glance in his eye that seemed to invoke the devil, and lay charges on him to sweep the whole concern to Gehenna. However, having chosen a pen and striped away the feathered top in a brief spasm of finger-fury, only finger-fury, his face was placid. He dashed off a batch of answers, sealed them, and then went out and walked through the mill. On coming back, he sat down to read his newspaper. The content seemed not absorbingly interesting. He more than once laid it across his knee, folded his arms, and gazed into the fire. He occasionally turned his head towards the window. He looked at intervals at his watch. In short, his mind appeared preoccupied. Perhaps he was thinking of the beauty of the weather, for it was a fine and mild morning for the season, and wishing to be out in the fields enjoying it. The door of his counting-house stood wide open. The breeze and sunshine entered freely. But the first visitant brought no spring perfume on its wings, only an occasional sulphur puff from the soot-thick column of smoke rushing sable from the gaunt mill chimney. A dark blue apparition, that of Joe Scott, fresh from a dying vat, appeared momentarily at the open door, uttered the words, "'He's come, sir,' and vanished. Mr. Moore raised not his eyes from the paper. A large man, broad-shouldered and massive-limbed, clad in fustian garments and grey worsted stockings, entered, who was received with a nod and desired to take a seat, which he did, making the remark as he removed his hat, stowed it away under his chair, and wiped his forehead with a spotted cotton handkerchief extracted from the hat crown, that it was right done warm for February. Mr. Moore assented. At least he uttered some slight sound which, though inarticulate, might pass for an assent. The visitor now carefully deposited in the corner beside him an official-looking staff which he bore in his hand. This done, he whistled, probably by way of appearing at ease. "'You have what is necessary, I suppose,' said Mr. Moore. "'Aye, aye, all's right.' He renewed his whistling, Mr. Moore, his reading. The paper apparently had become more interesting. Presently, however, he returned to his cupboard, which was within reach of his long arm, opened it without rising, took out a black bottle, the same that he had produced for Malone's benefit, a tumbler and a jug placed them on the table and said to his guest, "'Help yourself. There's water in that jar in the corner.' "'I didn't know that there's much need for a body as dry,' 
thirsty. In a morning, said the fustian gentleman, rising and doing as requested. Will you talk not yourself, Mr. Moore? He inquired, as with skilful hand he mixed a portion, and having tested it by deep draught, sank back, satisfied and bland in his seat. Moore, cherry of words, replied by a negative movement and murmur, It odd such ye up, what a sup of this stuff, uncommon good Hollands. Ye get it from foreign parts, I see. Aye. Tack my advice and try a glass on it. Them lads that's comin' will keep you talkin' nobody knows how long. You'll need proppin'. Have you seen Mr. Skies this morning? inquired Moore. I seed him half an hour, nay, happen a quarter of an hour sin, just afore I set off. He said he aimed to come here, and I shouldn't wonder but y'all have old headstone too. I seed him saddling his little nag as I passed at back out the rectory. The speaker was a true prophet, for the trot of the little nag's hoofs was five minutes after heard in the yard. It stopped, and a well-known nasal voice cried aloud, Boy, probably addressing Harry Scott, who usually hung about the premises from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., take my horse and lead him into the stable. Hellstone came in, marching nimbly and erect, looking browner, keener, and livelier than usual. Beautiful morning, Moore. How do you do, my boy? Ha! Whom have we here? Turning to the personage with the staff. Sudgen! What? You're going to work directly? On my word, you lose no time, but I come to ask explanations. Your message was delivered to me. Are you sure you are on the right scent? How do you mean to set about the business? Have you got a warrant? Sudgen has. Then you are going to seek him now. I'll accompany you. You will be spared that trouble, sir. He is coming to seek me. I am just now sitting in state, waiting his arrival. And who is it? One of my parishioners? Joe Scott had entered unobserved. He now stood a most sinister phantom, half his person being dyed of the deepest tint of indigo, leaning on the desk. His master's answer to the rector's question was a smile. Joe took the word. Putting on a quiet but pocky look, he said, "'It's a friend of yours, Mr. Hellstone, a gentleman you often speak of.' "'Indeed. His name, Joe? You look well this morning.' "'Only the Reverend Moses Barraclaw. Tubbed orator you call him sometimes, I think.' "'Ah,' said the rector, taking out his snuff-box and administering to himself a very long pinch. "'Ah, couldn't have supposed it. Why, the pious man never was a workman of yours more. He's a tailor by trade. And so much the worse grudge I owe him for interfering and settling my discarded men against me. And Moses was actually present at the Battle of Stillbro Moor. He went there, wooden leg and all. Aye, sir, said Joe. He went there on horseback, that his leg might be noticed. He was the captain and wore a mask. The rest only had their faces blackened. And how was he found out? I'll tell you, sir, said Joe. To Maester's not so fond of talkin', I've no objections. He courted Sarah, Mr. Moore's servant lass, and so it seems she would have nothing to say to him. She either didn't like his wooden leg, or she'd some notion about his being a hypocrite. Happen, for women is queer hands, we may say that among worslin when there's none of them nigh. She'd have encouraged him in spite of his leg and his deceit just to pass time like. I've known some of him to do as much. In summer to bonniest and mimiest looking today, I've seen em. I've seen clean, trim young things that look as denty and pure as daisies, and with time a body found em out to be naught but stinging venom nettles. Joe's a sensible fellow, interjected Hellstone. Howsever, Sarah had another string to her bow. 
Fred Murgatroyd, one of our lads, is for her. And as women judge men by their faces, and Fred has a middling face, while Moses is none so handsome, as we all know, the last took on with Fred. A two, three months sin, Murgatroyd and Moses chanced to meet one Sunday night. They'd both come lurking about the premises with the notion of counselling Sarah to take a bit of walk with them. They fell out, had a tussle, and Fred was worsted, for he's young and small, and Bearclaw, for all he has only one leg, is almost as strong as such in there. Indeed, anybody that hears him roaring at revival or a love feast may be sure he's no weakling. Joe, you're insupportable, here broke in Mr. Moore. You spin out your explanation as Moses spins out his sermons. The long and the short of it is, Murgatroyd was jealous of Baraclaw, and last night, as he and a friend took shelter in a barn from a shower, they heard and saw Moses conferring with some associates within. From their discourse, it was plain he had been the leader not only at Stillbro Moor, but in the attack on Skye's property. Moreover, they planned a deputation to wait on me this morning, which the tailor is to head, and which, in the most religious and peaceful spirit, is to entreat me to put the accursed thing out of my tent. I rode over to Winbury this morning, got a constable and a warrant, and now I am waiting to give my friend the reception he deserves. Here, meantime, comes Skye. Mr. Hellstone, you must spirit him up. He feels timid at the thoughts of prosecuting. A gig was heard to roll into the yard. Mr. Skye's entered, a tall, stout man of about fifty, comely of feature, but feeble in physiognomy. He looked anxious. Have they been? Are they gone? "'Have you got him? Is it over?' he asked. "'Not yet,' returned Moore with phlegm. "'We are waiting for them.' "'They'll not come. It's near noon. Better give up. It will excite bad feeling, make a stir, cause perhaps fatal consequences.' "'You need not appear,' said Moore. "'I shall meet them in the yard when they come. You can stay here.' "'But my name must be seen on the law proceedings. A wife and family, Mr. Moore, a wife and family make a man cautious.' Moore looked disgusted. "'Give way, if you please,' said he. "'Leave me to myself. I have no objection to act alone. Only be assured you will not find safety in submission.' "'Your partner Pearson gave way and conceded and forbore. Well, that did not prevent them from attempting to shoot him in his own house.' "'My dear sir, take a little wine and water,' recommended Mr. Hellstone. The wine and water was Holland's and water.' as Mr. Sykes discovered when he had compounded and swallowed a brimming tumbler thereof. It transfigured him in two minutes, brought the color back to his face, and made today word valiant. He now announced that he hoped he was above being trampled on by the common people. He was determined to endure the insolence of the working classes no longer. He had considered of it, made up his mind to go all lengths. If money and spirit could put down these rioters, they should be put down. Mr. Moore might do as he liked, but he, Christopher Sykes, would spend his last penny in the law before he would be beaten. He'd settle them, or he'd see. "'Take another glass,' urged Moore. Mr. Sykes didn't mind if he did. This was a cold morning. Sudgeon had found it a warm one. It was necessary to be careful at this time of year. It was proper to take something to keep the damp out. He had a cough already. Here he coughed in attestation of the fact. Something of this sort, lifting the black bottle, was excellent taken medicinally. He poured the physic into his tumbler. He didn't make a practice of drinking spirits in the morning, but occasionally it really was prudent to take precautions. Quite prudent, and take them by all means, urged the host. Mr. Sykes now addressed Mr. Hellstone, who stood on the hearth, 
his shovel hat on his head, watching him significantly with his keen little eyes. "'You, sir, as a clergyman,' said he, "'may feel it disagreeable to be present amid scenes of hurry and flurry, "'and I may say peril. "'I dare say your nerves won't stand it. "'You're a man of peace, sir, "'but we manufacturers living in the world and always in turmoil get quite belligerent. "'Really there's an ardour excited by the thoughts of danger that makes my heart pant. "'When Miss Sykes is afraid of the house being attacked and broken open, as she is every night, "'I get quite excited. "'I couldn't describe to you, sir, my feelings.' Really, if anybody was to come, thieves or anything, I believe I should enjoy it such as my spirit. The hardest of laughs, though brief and low, and by no means insulting, was the response of the rector. More would have pressed upon the heroic mill-owner a third tumbler, but the clergyman, who never transgressed, nor would suffer others in his presence to transgress, the bounds of decorum, checked him. Enough is as good as a feast, is it not, Mr. Sykes? he said. And Mr. Sykes assented, and then sat and watched Joe Scott remove the bottle at a sign from Hellstone. With a self-satisfied simper on his lips and a regretful glisten in his eye, Moore looked as if he should have liked to fool him the top of his bent. What would a certain young kinswoman of his have said? Could she have seen her dear, good, great Robert, her Coriolanus, just now? Would she have acknowledged that in that mischievous, sardonic visage, the same face to which she had looked up with such love, which had bent over her with such gentleness last night? Was that the man who had spent so quiet an evening with his sister and his cousin, so suave to one, so tender to the other, reading Shakespeare and listening to Chenier? Yes, it was the same man, only seen on a different side, a side Carolyn had not yet fairly beheld, though perhaps she had enough sangacity faintly to suspect its existence. Well, Caroline had, doubtless, her defective side, too. She was human. She must, then, have been very imperfect. And had she seen more on his very worst side, she probably would have said this to herself and excused him. Love can excuse anything except meanness. But meanness kills love, cripples even natural affection. Without esteem, true love cannot exist. More, with all his faults, might be esteemed, for he had no moral scrofula in his mind, no hopeless polluting taint, such, for instance, as that falsehood, neither was he the slave of his appetites. The active life to which he had been born and bred had given him something else to do than to join the futile chase of the pleasure-hunter. He was a man integrated, the disciple of reason, not the votary of sense. The same might be said of old Hellstone. Neither of these two would look, think, or speak a lie, for neither of them had the wretched black bottle, which had been just put away, any charms both might boast a valid claim to the proud title of lord of the creation, for no animal vice was lord of them. They looked and were superior beings to poor Sykes. A sort of gathering and trampling sound was heard in the yard, and then a pause. Moore walked to the window. Hellstone followed. Both stood on one side, the tall junior behind the undersized senior, looking forth carefully so that they might not be visible from without. Their sole comment on what they saw was a cynical smile flashed into each other's stern eyes. A flourishing oratorical cough was now heard, followed by the interjection, Whisht! designed as it seemed to still the hum of several voices. Moore opened his casement an inch or two to admit sound more freely. Joseph Scott, began a snuffling voice. Scott was standing sentinel at the counting-house door. Might we inquire if your master be within, and is to be spoken to? He's within, I, said Joe nonchalantly. Would you then, if you please, emphasis on you, have the goodness to tell him that twelve gentlemen wants to see him? 
He'd happen to ask what for, suggested Joe. I might as well tell him at the same time. For a purpose, was the answer. Joe entered. Please, sir, there's twelve gentlemen wants to see ye. For a purpose. Good, Joe, I'm their man. Sudgeon, come when I whistle. Moore went out, chuckling dryly. He advanced into the yard, one hand in his pocket, the other in his waistcoat, his cap brim over his eyes, shading in some measure their deep dancing ray of scorn. Twelve men waited in the yard, some in their shirt-sleeves, some in blue aprons. Two figured conspicuously in the van of the party, one a little dapper strutting man with a turned-up nose, the other a broad-shouldered fellow, distinguished no less by his demure face and cat-like, trustless eyes than by a wooden leg and stout crutch. There was a kind of leer about his lips. He seemed laughing in his sleeve at some person or thing. His whole air was anything but that of a true man. "'Good morning, Mr. Barclaw,' said Moore, debonairly for him. End of chapter 8, part 1 Recording by A. Janelle Risa.